Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. In today's economy, more people than ever are looking to buy and sell businesses. But how do you do it? Welcome to The Deal Board, presented by Transworld Business Advisors. Straight talk about real deals and real people. Listen to stories, interviews, and expert advice to help your business sale, merger, or acquisition process. Now, here are your business exit experts, Andy and Jessica. Hey, welcome, everybody. And today we have a very important topic, and people always ask about mergers and acquisitions and whether or not my business is big enough to be bought by one of these huge companies. And why isn't my company uh, selling to Facebook for $100 million and all those kind of great things? And so we, we talk about today about what is an M&A deal. Right. And we've got some great experts on, you know, one of the top M&A advisors from your office, Andy, a couple of them actually, and then also an expert from the private equity side. But we also talk about, you know, what what makes your deal an M&A deal in terms of size and structure and, and all of that stuff that I think the listeners need to understand in order to understand the M&A market and M&A transactions. Yeah. A lot of times we talk to business owners about their business and they want to, you know, why is my business selling? Uh, we, we had our valuation podcast. We talked about two times. Why isn't it selling for four and five times? And, and it has to do with quality and quantity of earnings, which we did talk about. But, you know, as you get closer to a million dollars in earnings, you start to be considered as a target for companies. And we think that's kind of where things change. When an individual buys your business, it's certainly a different process than when a company buys your interest. Right. And they're very well, you have to understand the the buyers in the M&A market are very, very well represented. And building the right team to represent your M&A transaction is very important. Um, and we talk a little bit about that today. But, you know, we have the, an M&A department in Tampa that I don't think we've talked about on the show yet. But, you know, Andy, what kind of resources did we build out in there? Maybe you can talk about, you know, what goes into that size of transaction in terms of people and hours and all of that stuff. Yeah, it's just a different process. And we figured out that it takes a team of people to get a deal done. And, you know, it's sort of like why you uh, hire a law firm instead of just one lawyer, perhaps when you have a bigger business, because there are a lot of things that go into it. And we found that, you know, we have to have an analyst and we have to have business development people and we have to have outbound calling and we have to have research and we have to have, you know, uh, pitch deck and, and, and SIM, which was confidential information memorandums built. And so we just realized that it takes a lot to get a big deal done. And we have some of the best experts. I mean, Peter Berg's been with us for 20 years and he came from the investment banking world, took his own public, you know, company public. And we have Mike Ertle who uh, talks about the investment banking world and whether or not it should be handled by investment banker because he's the leading expert in the United States because we've been working with the SEC and Congress to clarify the stock sale compliance laws. And Mike is the foremost expert on that. But he talks about, you know, when do you start looking for an investment banker and how do you raise capital? So there's a lot of things that go into M&A deals. But if you're purely looking to sell your business, um, you probably get approached almost every single day if you're in the middle market. 
Right. Yeah. I mean, we even know, even as brokers that represent some transactions in the middle market, you know, we'll get three to five solicitations a day. And these business owners in that market are getting those same solicitations. So you're right. If if your business is attractive to the middle market, you probably are already getting interest. But understanding the process and how these deals are structured and really building your team right from the start is critical in these transactions. Because I don't think we can repeat it enough. These buyers, they're, they're very savvy. They do this all the time and they're very well represented in these deals. Yeah. And the sellers need to be well represented. The sellers need to have more than one buyer, which we talk about. Uh, Peter talks about, you know, you have one buyer, they have you. And he talks about, you know, that finding the buyer is just starting the process. I mean, then you have to talk about all the documentation and the, and, and the due diligence and the letters of intent and the, you know, all the schedules that go into definitive agreements. I mean, it is a bear and a business owner that tries to do this themselves is doomed for, you know, for, for failure, not for success. These deals are are very, very difficult. And, you know, Mike and Peter are two of the best in the industry. And something Peter says to me all, all the time is, you know, every deal dies three times. And I think these deals will die like eight or nine times. And, and really, you need the experts to help you work through these. So I hope today is a great learning lesson and a peek into what the M&A market looks like and an M&A transaction looks like. And I hope all of you listeners get a lot out of today's show. Yeah. And, and if you get one thing out of today's show, it's that we're here to help you. And, you know, Transworld uh, has 500, you know, intermediaries across the world. And we have a leading team in the M&A department that will, you know, partner with anybody across the world. Uh, so you'll have people on the ground and you'll have a crack M&A team at your service and, uh, you know, helping you get deals done. So let's get to it. Transworld Business Advisors is the world's largest business brokerage and mergers and acquisitions firm with over 500 brokers in nearly 200 offices worldwide. Transworld's team handles thousands of business sales every year. To be connected with a qualified business broker or learn more about the buying and selling process, visit tworld.com forward slash the deal board or call 888-719-9098. Welcome back, everybody. I have with us Sage Harrison, who is principal at Trinity Private Equity Group. And he's here to talk today about what is an M&A transaction, but specifically, what is private equity looking for in a transaction? So Sage, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining us on the show and welcome. Happy to be here, Jessica. Thank you. So just give us a little bit of a background and overview, kind of what is Trinity and, you know, what is your role in the, in the, um, in the company right now? Sure, sure. So Trinity Private Equity Group is based uh, just right outside of Dallas. Uh, we look at various types of investments. Um, we focus on real estate and operating companies. And within those two large sectors, we have a number of uh, other focuses such as, you know, within the operating company, we've got a lot of niches we look at within the real estate. We have, you know, various major uh, niches we look at within that as well. So uh, last year we put out 170 million of equity across 14 investments. 12 of those were real estate. 
Uh, two of those were operating companies, just to give you a little more information. Okay, great. So tell us a little bit about, you know, this episode's about, you know, what is an M&A deal, but what would you consider an M&A deal or what specifically are you looking for in a deal right now? Yeah, so I'm going to focus on operating companies for the sake of this discussion. And what we look for when it comes to operating companies um, is, is multifold. First and foremost, uh, I think most private equity groups, uh, I would say my contemporaries or even my competitors, we're looking for companies that are at least $2 million in EBITDA. And EBITDA can get a little bit of uh, cloudy as far as what that really means and the value of that. But really, when we say EBITDA, we're really looking for kind of net cash flows. Um, and so to that end, that's the first criteria is we're looking for $2 million of EBITDA. Usually that's, call it, uh, you know, $10 million of revenue up to $50 million in revenue. Uh, to that end as well, we're usually looking for EBITDA margins of, of 10%. So of uh, 10% minimum, um, once it gets below 10%, um, you're working really hard for, for your cash flow, and that can be a challenge. So that's, that's a minimum criteria, the size, and that's the easiest. Uh, the next thing that we go to immediately when we're evaluating a deal is the customer breakdown or revenue composition, as we call it. What does the revenue look like and how many customers are comprising that? If you have $2 million in EBITDA and $10 million of revenue, well, you check the first box. But if you only have or if one customer comprises, say, over 30% or 40%, you've got a huge risk there. So that's the, sec- you know, that's the second thing we look for is how many customers they have and what is the biggest customer comprise. Uh, the third thing we look for is how recurring is the revenue? Are they, is the company extremely project-based, like a general contractor, for instance, or a, you know, or a subcontractor in the construction world, just that everybody's familiar with? Or is it a pretty recurring type of revenue base where there are, you know, they're making uh, the, a widget and they're making it for 100 customers and these customers continually buy more widgets on a monthly or annual basis, for instance. That would be you know, a much more recurring setup. Uh, so those are the three primary things that immediately we go to to try to assess. Sage, I should say to the listeners too that you know you've been a value partner with Transworld for a long time and presented and talked to a lot of our brokers, and that's a recurring message: is that you know you're looking for a certain size deal, and then you're you know those other factors are really um, based on how how much you guys can grow it as a group as well, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, right before I walked into this podcast with you, Jessica, I was sitting with two of our analysts going through 15 deals. And the very first thing we do is look at the size. The second thing is we look at customer list. And the third thing we do is look at how recurring it is. And then from, the, and then from there, we look at, okay, what does management want to do? They do, do they want a full divestiture or do they want to stay on? Uh, and then really it's how do we grow this company post-acquisition? So the first, if you think about it like this, the first few questions are really around risk management and and qualifying. So they have to qualify. And then as soon as they qualify, meaning they have at least 2 million in EBITDA, we're really trying to figure out how how risky it is. Because even if we buy it really, if we get in the middle of a tough acquisition, if they've got solid recurring revenue, well, we can work out of it. But if you get into an acquisition where they're heavily project-based, you lose a key person or key people, or you lose a key customer. Now all of a sudden, 
uh, most of your revenue is gone, well, you're really in a tough spot from a private equity standpoint. Right. Right. It makes total sense. And really, it's not that much different than how buyers will evaluate a deal on Main Street either, but, you know, just at a much higher level. So, Sage, before I uh, let you go, tell me a little bit about what is the market like right now searching for deals in the private equity space? Well, there's there's a lot more money, a lot more capital than there are good deals. Um, I don't want to say there's a lack of deals because there's there's tons of deals. We get bombarded with deals every day and we're thankful for those. Uh, but most of the time when we pull back the pull back their onion a little bit, they, they are customers that or they have, you know, all these. There's an issue with a lot of these deals. Either they have one customer that's 60 percent of their revenue or they, you know, they were break even last year. And now this year they're 3 million in EBITDA or they have a serious exposure to commodity risk like oil and gas drilling, or they, you know, or they're, they're, the, the current sellers don't want to stay on. They want to just throw the keys and walk away, which to always raises eyebrows. So it's, it's hard to find a deal that checks the boxes. And when I talk to investment bankers, they say, oh my gosh, private equity are so picky. So, and I get that statement. However, when you think about it, we're, we're paying a multiple, right? We're paying a, a multiple of either from four to six times EBITDA. And we can really jam ourselves up if we don't have a lot of these boxes checked. Uh, we can create a situation where there's a really outsized risk for a limited reward when we're paying up for something like this. Right, right, correct. And I'm, I'm not sure about your structure, but most private equity firms have outside investors that they have a fiduciary responsibility to as well, correct? Uh, you're absolutely right. That's a great point. So not only do we have to be sold on the deal, but we have to turn around, sell our LPs on the deal, and then go get a debt provider and sell them on the deal. So it may seem like we're you know extremely picky, but at the end of the day, we we know that uh, it's not just up to us. We've got a we've got a lot of stakeholders that we have to convince of the safety of this deal and also the upside of a given deal. Great, great. Well, thank you so much, Sage, for providing some insight into the private equity world and pulling back the curtain for our listeners. If someone wants to learn more about you or Trinity, where is the best place for them to find that information? So first of all, I appreciate you very much, Jessica, and I also appreciate Transworld. I've had a great relationship with a lot of leadership uh, within Transworld and, and the community there, and you guys do a ton to support uh, the various franchisees and stakeholders within Transworld. And um, so thanks for having me. Um, but if anyone ever wants to get in touch with me, they can feel free to email me at sage at trinitypeg.com. Uh, and I think that, you know, all, our website is just trinitypeg.com and uh, you can read about deals that we have, um, things that we're doing, and you can reach out to me via email or phone uh, anytime you have a question. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for that, Sage. And thanks again for joining us. For the listeners, we'll drop that information down into the show notes so you can connect with Sage if you have f- further questions. But thank you again, Sage. Thank you very much. Hey, Andy, you know what time I think it is? I think it's time to talk about our deal of the week. Deal of the week. Welcome back, everybody. We have Dustin Audette from our Transworld Denver office today with a deal of the week to talk about a closed coffee shop that he recently completed. So welcome, Dustin. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me. So tell me a little bit about this coffee shop that you just sold. Yeah, the the coffee shop was open for about three years. It was part of a larger corporate 
uh, structure. They just wanted a forward facing. They mainly did roasting, uh, but wanted some kind of customer interaction. The space wasn't making any money. Um, actually losing money every year and was dealing with a bunch of extra employees like regional managers, things like that. So they brought me in to offset some of that to sell off the business, uh, lighten their load. And that's what we did. Great. So who was the buyer of the business and how did you find them? Uh, the buyer came to me through biz by sell. It came pretty quickly. It was a father and son team. The dad is the investor. The son has been working in coffee for a few years and wanted to go out on his own. Uh, thankfully they were a cash buyer. So during the government shutdown, we were totally okay and could close really quickly. All right. And for the good details now, tell us a little bit about the financials of the business. Was it making money? How much? Um, how much did the business sell for? And then how was the deal structured as well? So we listed the business for 150 and that was just kind of in good faith to see what we could get. Uh, we settled on a price for 102 and uh, we got there by kind of putting the seller and the buyer in the same room and which I called the Thunderdome and letting them kind of duke it out and figure out each other's worth and how they could add value to each other. Uh, the business was losing money. I think the SDE came in right around $5,000 a year. The structure was totally cash. So we just did 102 at closing. All done. One of those unicorn all cash deals. Well, great. Thank you so much, Dustin. And um, thanks for sharing the story. Thank you. Hey, we're back and we have a very special guest today. We have Mike Ertle from Transworld Mergers and Acquisitions here in Tampa, Florida. And uh, I happen to be traveling to Tampa this week. And we're very happy to have Mike. Mike not only is with uh, Transworld, but he's been uh, in our industry for decades. I won't age him for everybody, but um, he's been working with me and other people uh, with the regulators uh, at the SEC and with uh, government officials to really kind of drill down and make sure that everybody is in compliance when we're doing mergers and acquisitions and the right intermediaries are not breaking SEC regulations and securities laws. And um, so I wanted to have a little conversation about, you know, some of the uh, issues that people can trip over when they're thinking about raising capital or selling their business. But first, you know, Michael, I've been asking other people on this podcast, you know, what makes an M&A transaction or when, when, when does somebody think that they really need a, a, a broker dealer instead of a regular intermediary that, you know, like, like Transworld? Well, thanks, Andy, and I appreciate your having me on the podcast. Um, the way that I approach this is really to fast forward to who is going to be the best buyer for this business. If the business is going to be uh, most likely acquired by an individual owner-operator, then you're well served by any of the Transworld business advisors who have experience in doing uh, those kinds of transactions. Those buyers are looking for a business that they can afford. They know how much money they can put down. They are eager to see that you've already arranged bank financing so that they're 20% down or 10% down, plus the bank financing will enable them to acquire a business of this size. Businesses at that level are typically priced. You go to market with an asking price because the buyers search based on the price of a business they can afford. If, on the other hand, you look down the road and say the best buyer for this business is going to be a corporate buyer or a private equity group or a family office where they have more of a, uh, an investment team, 
There are going to be multiple people looking at this deal and, and giving their recommendation to the CEO of the company or the, the head invest, of their investment team. Uh, you really need to think about engaging someone with experience in doing M&A transactions. Typically in an M&A transaction, you put together a very comprehensive book. We call it a confidential information memorandum that tells the good, the bad, and the ugly because this book is going to be passed around to uh, insurance people, securities people, financial people, legal people, and they're all looking for uh, the chinks in your armor. And if they find something, uh, they're going to go to the, the buyer and say, oh, you want to be careful about this because there's a problem here. If you disclose everything, you, there aren't any surprises when they come and they visit the company and they we get into due diligence. And the goal in getting an M&A transaction closed is for there to be absolutely no surprises. So that's really the difference. Who's who's going to be the buyer, in my view, dictates what kind of a process you should pursue. That's perfect. And, and, and I agree with that. You know, sometimes we talk about whether or not the level of price kind of drives whether or not it's an M&A transaction, which it does on some levels. Uh, but sometimes, you know, we have businesses that make no money. You know, people have talked about, well, you need at least a million dollars in EBITDA before it's an M&A transaction. But we've had some very, very established businesses that have IP. We sold a business that had uh, uh, IP in the medical industry that sold for millions of dollars that made no money. And that was done because, and it was a truly an M&A transaction. So, so, you know, that's the typical M&A transaction where, you know, the business is going to be sold as a whole uh, to an individual, to not an individual, to more of an M&A acquirer, whether that be a strategic buyer or a, a private equity group or a family office. So that's absolutely a merger and acquisition uh, advisory kind of level business. So what I see a lot of uh, M&A advisors who are in that business start to get tripped up and, and start to tread on uh, securities laws is when they want to do some sort of financial recap or sell shares. So can you speak to that a little bit where people kind of, you know, might start breaking the law? That's an excellent question, Andy. And uh, unfortunately, I've had a lot of experience talking to regulators and legislators uh, about this issue. And uh, there's widespread support for the notion that if you're engaged in the sale of the business, whether it turns out to be an asset sale or a stock sale or a composite sale that involves uh, other elements like a seller's note or an earnout that that are considered a security. Uh, if you if all that you're doing is helping a the owner of a privately held business sell that entity, whether you whether it's structured as an asset sale or it's structured as a securities transaction, there's widespread support for the idea that 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 activity shouldn't be as tightly regulated as as the current law provides, and we're making good progress in trying to get the law changed. The line that they draw is capital raising. If you're in any way, shape, or form engaged in raising capital, you absolutely positively need to be securities licensed, and they're not going to cut any slack there because that's where the problem arises. You're, you're holding somebody else's money. You're, you're committing them to a transaction, and there's, uh, there's been a lot of mischief in that area over time. So the regulators are really uh, coming down hard on people who are doing capital raises without being properly licensed. So, you know, and, and I think one of the things that we've been working on and, and, and 
is the reason why we want to also change these laws is because the access to capital, the access, the ability for people to sell their business in small businesses has been limited. And, it, you know, it is very costly to try to raise capital. It's very costly to do an M&A transaction uh, under securities regulations. And so we have been successful in changing some of the laws and getting a no action letter. So, uh, you know, what do you say to someone that wants to raise a million dollars or $2 million? Uh, that's a, that's a very tough question. Um, today, uh, most of the people who are experts in raising capital will tell you that it just doesn't pay with the legal fees involved and the securities fees involved and the commissions involved to raise a small amount of money, like a million dollars. That may be changing with all the work that's being done on crowdfunding and, and the like. I'm not up to speed on where that is exactly. But what, what conventional wisdom has been is if you're looking for a million dollars or less, you're much more likely to find that from friends and family than to, than to engage an investment banker and try to go out and raise that money publicly. Yeah, that, that's what we found too. I don't know anybody that legitimately even tries to raise even, it's tough to even raise 5 million. Um, and it's probably more like 10 million is where it starts. So, so now we have, uh, you know, small business owners or medium business owners that are coming to the market, uh, that want to sell their business. And, um, and, you know, we've identified that an M&A transaction might be just about who the buyer is. And it might be uh, somewhat of the level of selling a business. And lastly, now, it might be as if they're raising capital, they're going to need a broker, you know, certainly a, a broker dealer. So, um, you know, what else should people be looking out for as far as, uh, you know, making them a, a, an M&A transaction? The market for well-managed, profitable business has probably never been stronger. Uh, the advice that I give to business owners who are thinking about selling is don't wait too long. The biggest mistake that we see business owners making is they're so involved in the day-to-day -day operation of their business and they're having so much fun at it and they're making so much money at it that they spend very little time thinking about how are they going to successfully transition out of it. And if what we saw in the last recession was any guide, um, it went down very quickly and it took forever to come back. And so if you hang on to your business into the next recession, it may be, as it was last time, it may be five years before the market recovers to where it was just before the recession. So the best advice that I can give a business owner is don't wait too long. Well, that's great advice, too. We've been talking a lot about whether or not, you know, what the marketplace is going to look like with baby boomers coming to the market. There actually might be a glut of not only, you know, a glut of business owners trying to sell and the inability for the, there be enough buyers to buy those businesses. But, um, you know, it's a very active marketplace right now. You're a wealth of information. So why don't you give people an idea of how they can get in touch with you? Thanks, Andy. Well, the easiest way to get in touch with me is probably to call our uh, 800 number, 888-864-6610. Uh, either uh, I or one of the other experienced uh, uh, managing directors here at Transworld M&A would be happy to assist. Um, you can also visit us at our website, uh, transworldma.com. You'll see my bio. You'll see um, tombstones of other deals that we've worked on. And uh, you'll see the bios of other people that work in the M&A division. We'd be delighted to hear from you. Thank you so much, Mike. I really appreciate you coming in today. 
Hey, Jessica, you know what time it is? Money time? Almost. It's time for Listing of the Week. This week, we have a Listing of the Week from Al Fiakovich out of our Denver office. Al, tell us a little bit about this business for sale. Great. Thanks, Jessica. So this week, we have a custom stone fabrication insulation company. It's great business. Priced at $979,000, SPA pre-qualified, all the equipment's new. So for only 100000 down, you can get cash flow of 300 plus. Tell us a little bit about what the owners do and who would be the best buyer for this business. The owners bought this business a number of years ago and had no experience in the granite space. So they just run the business operations and uh, work part-time. Great, great. And if anybody wants to learn more about this business, Al, how can they contact you? You can email me at albert at tworld.com or call me at 720-357-6853. Great. Thanks so much for joining the show, Al, and good luck. Hey, we're back and we have a very special guest. He's not a guest. He's a family member. He's my partner. His name is Peter Berg. He has been working in our M&A division here at Transworld for 20 years. Uh, he has a large background in M&A uh, that he could give you a brief overview of. But we're here talking about, again, what makes an M&A deal? When is your business different than perhaps selling a main street business and what are those differences in those deals so with that i just want to introduce peter peter why don't you give him a little background about who you are so i joined Transworld in the fall of 2000 and my background before that was as an investment banker and i did what i do here at Transworld, but i did it with with a through a securities firm and and involved doing things like ipos and reverse mergers and capital fundraising, things like that. When I came to Transworld, what I liked about the company is the ability to be able to work with sellers on transactions of all sizes. And I knew that there was a big opportunity in businesses that I would call M&A size transactions. What I mean by that is an M&A transaction, I would classify as any transaction where the buyer for the business is going to be either a financial buyer, which, which would be a private equity group, or a strategic buyer, which could be a competitor or somebody who is in your industry, but not necessarily a direct competitor. If the buyer of your business is an individual, the chances are that we would classify that as a main street business. Agreed. We, you know, we talk about million dollars in EBITDA, but you're right. I mean, we've sold businesses that are, you know, don't have any earnings, but, you know, we just sold one that had 20 patents involved and we sold it to a billion dollar company and really didn't make much money, but it was sold for multi millions of dollars because of the EIP. So that's great. So, you know, uh, I think now we all understand wh- what an M&A transaction might be. So what are some of the things that, you know, why does the seller need good representation? I'm kind of setting you up here, but, you know, there's certainly more moving parts in an M&A deal than your typical Main Street deal. First, in terms of why would a seller need representation? Sellers of businesses have been successful in creating the enterprise that they have. They're good at managing their people, managing their sales force, managing their processes, managing their finances, and building building their wealth. 
they're not in the business of selling their business. And just like you wouldn't do your own, try to do your own brain surgery, or you wouldn't try to represent yourself in a lawsuit in court, you don't want to become an amateur business intermediary and try to make the biggest sale of your lifetime with that, with no experience. And second, it's important during the process. And, and one of the, one of the reasons that transactions fail is that during they can take, it can take six, nine months, or even a year to get a transaction done. And during that time, your business has to perform at maximum efficiency. Your sales need to be going up and your profits need to be going up, not down. The, the, the worst thing that can happen is you get so involved in the process of selling your business and so distracted by the process that you take your eye off the, off the, off the mark and your sales start to wobble. Maybe you lose a couple of customers and your sales drop. And now we're about to close and your, your EBITDA is down 20%. Well, guess what? the buyer's not going to pay the price that you negotiated six months before and the deal will fall apart or you're going to have to take a big haircut at the close. So that's really what an intermediary can do for you. The other thing is, of course, is to package your business for sale properly. Tell the story. What makes your business unique? What's the value proposition of your business? What makes it worth more than another business that just does the same thing and take it to the marketplace. Identify the strategic buyers who would be most likely to buy your business and to identify the financial buyers or private equity buyers that would be the most likely. Put a package together. This we call a confidential information memoranda. And it's typically a 30 or 40 page document and it tells the story. And it also has a financial summary of the business, talks about what you do, how you do it, who you are, what the organizational structure looks like, what the value proposition is. And we also discuss maybe some of the, what I would call the soft underbelly of the business, you know, what the issues are. We don't want to, we don't want to lead with our warts, so to speak, but on the other hand, you don't want to have too many surprises. So if there are challenges that you've had, maybe maybe you lost a customer the year before, so your sales dipped. Whatever it is, we want to sort of we want to take charge and take the lead on disseminating any you know kind of negative information about the business. Once we do that, we put together our marketing list and we go out to the market and sell the business. Yeah, and we've certainly seen sellers come to us and say. Well, that's a great process. And, you know, but I already have the buyer. The buyer's already come to us. So I know the one or two buyers that are going to buy to us. So I'm just going to approach them directly. And and you have a fishing analogy that we use to say why that's really a bad idea to try to engage that one perfect buyer. Well, first of all, the saying, the one saying is if you have a buyer, you have nothing, they have you. Because if, you only have one buyer. That buyer basically controls the process. They can string you out for three months, six months. They can, can they can start negotiating the price down. And basically, you have no alternatives. There's no buyers waiting in the wings. You don't. There's no competition for your business. There's nothing that's keeping the set, the buyer honest and 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 committed to the process. What I tell people 
it's oftentimes uh, you've tried to sell the business on your own or you've put the word out to your attorney or to your CPA if you hear of anybody and maybe they've heard of somebody and next thing you know, you've got somebody talking to you. So the analogy I like to use, and we're, we're, we're down here in South Florida, so we, we fish down here. But if you've ever gone out on a boat and you're with the captain and he takes you to where the fishing spots are and you hook a big 300-pound fish in 1,000 feet of water, what do you do? You turn to the captain and you say, how do I get that fish from the bottom of the ocean to my dinner plate? So half of the battle is hooking the fish. And the other half of the battle is bringing the fish on the boat and getting it home. And, and it's really true in a business transaction. Half of the battle is finding the buyer. The other half of the battle is going through the due diligence process, proving all the financials, working through the employment agreements, working through all the legal contracts, solving, putting out all the fires inevitably that come up, dealing with all the issues that arise, and getting it to the closing table and getting the money in your bank account. So even if you have your own buyer, you're, you're better served having an intermediary be the captain and get that fish on your plate. That's great. And, and the other thing that I, I find in some of these M&A transactions is, you know, the buyers are very skilled and very well represented. So there's all these things that they put into the deals, these letters of intent and these and these uh, definitive agreements that really a person who's never done a transaction is at a huge disadvantage. And really the deal can be retraded along the way or even after the closing table. Absolutely, Andy. I like to, I put a lot of emphasis in the letter of intent, which is the initial document that you're going to receive from the buyer after you've gotten the buyer, after the package has been prepared, there's been meetings and conference calls and so forth, and they say they're interested. I find that if you have a well-executed, negotiated letter of intent, it'll lead to a, it, it's, you have a higher probability of, get, of a successful closing because there are, there are elements in a poorly written LOI that have a lot of gray areas that are, that are going to come up, problems that are going to come up that you haven't thought about. For example, working capital. What are you going to leave behind? You've got inventory in your business. You've got accounts receivable in your business. You've got cash in your business. How much of that is going to be left on the table and how much of that are you going to take off the table? You don't want to wait until a week or a day before the close where the sell, the buyer says, oh, by the way, that $2 million of cash I'm keeping. So these are some of the things that you want to negotiate, as well as employment agreements, uh, equity that you're going to retain in the business. Are you going to be in the same class of equity owner? Are they going to have preferred shares? Are they going to get money off before you get your money back? How do you get out of it? What happens if you don't get along? There are a lot of issues that can come up that need to be negotiated that are not the same with a small business where you're just going to sell it, get paid, and go away. That's a great beginning to this conversation. I know that there's tons of things that uh, we could talk about as far as schedules and, and uh, 
by the closing and hundreds of documents that have to be negotiated. And I, I watch you and our team do these deals for the larger clients. Uh, if somebody wants more information, how best to get in touch with you? So the best thing to do would be to reach out to me directly. And uh, I will, from there, determine I'll be able to get back to you and, and, and let you know my thoughts on, on your on your business and, and, you know, generally what the market looks like and, and how things are priced. And you can do that by emailing me at pberg at transworldma.com, P-B-E-R-G at T-R-A-N-S-W-O-R-L-D-M-A.com. Or you can call me on my cell phone at any time, 954-907-3007. It's 954- 907-3007. Weekends, evenings, that's fine. If I pick up the phone, I'm working. If I'm not working, I won't pick up the phone and I'll call you back. Thanks, Peter. That's perfect. Thanks for stopping in today. Thank you, Andy. Thanks for tuning in to our show today. If you like the podcast, don't forget to subscribe through your favorite podcasting app and leave us a review. If you have questions or suggestions for the show, Visit us at tworld slash the deal board or email us at the deal board at tworld.com. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.